podcast tonight is episode number four where we talk about spaces that exist outside of academia to offer alternatives to formalized education what it would look like to create a space outside of academia ourselves and we will attempt a thought and spirit experiment on trying to explain perfection of the human experience if you'd like to follow us on all social media channels you could do so by following a space podcast on instagram and twitter Keep a lookout for us on YouTube in the next couple of months. We'll be coming out with a short video to promote the podcast, and maybe we might announce the blog. Maybe not. That'd be interesting. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can do so via Cash App by donating to Money Sign A Space Podcast. Again, that's Money Sign A Space Podcast. You can catch us expanding to all podcast services around the globe. The list is growing, and right now we stream on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music. Spotify, Our Heart Radio, and you can find the first episode on SoundCloud. What's up, Nimbus? Nothing much, man. Oh, shit. How long has it been a day? It has been a day, man. So, I guess the first thing we have on our agenda for today... Is refilling my beer. There you go. (laughs) And then first, asking ourselves... Have there been pillars or beacons of knowledge outside of the realm of academia? Mm. That's going to be the first question. I mean, ones that I can think of is like my favorite example, like the Black Panther Party. Definitely Mm -hmm. like rose out of, you know, just like a response to not being treated well in America and immediately got on the scene and you could argue if we're painting this with a broad brush, started re-education campaigns. I mean, if you want to paint it broadly, provided social services. I mean, came up with the foundation for social services. And you could also argue that the Nation of Islam did the same thing. Mm -hmm. When they came Mm -hmm. in, they, like, reformed drug addicts. And then they began to educate them on specific subjects tutor them and also at the same time introduce them to islam so mm-hmm. i mean those are ones that i have off the top of my head do you, can you think of any other ones that you think that you would think more broadly i would say there's always been um somebody in a community that cares that's willing to spend time investing in, in the people that they see whether it's your local guy that just happens to be 
incredibly intelligently smart that you enjoy talking to whenever you see them in your day-to-day routine as a more like random event. But in terms of organized uh, education reforms or outside uh, academia education, there's always been public libraries, there's always been community centers um, in various cities that are open resources to everybody. It's just a bad, it's a matter of whether or not they were used a whole lot. Yeah. And I think in today's age where we're so connected by technology and we think everything we need to know is just a Google away yeah. on our smartphones that the idea of going down, like going out of your way to intentionally chase down a minor or a major detail to something that you think you already have a handle on by going down to a, a library and talking to somebody or trying to find somebody in your community center that might know something about that that's affecting you. Um, that concept has been lost. Yeah. Significantly. Um, the other thing I would say is that anything that, I mean, anything can be educational. Right. If you come to it with the right mindset, you know? Um, I mean, some of the best for, people look at life as an education, continuous right. education. Yeah. I mean, yeah. life, if you never, it's a weird thing to say and it seems trivial, but if you look at life like a constant lesson plan, mm-hmm. right? You wake up every day, you got a new lesson to learn, trying to learn something. So looking for something that'll blow your mind every day. Right. You keep doing that, your level of consumption of information alone will act as a, a really good, well-rounding education. Um, and it doesn't need a certification or accreditation from some ambiguous body of people that are determined to know what education is. Right. Right. So that gives you a tangible connection to your educational experience that you can go, I know. You don't have to say, well, I have a piece of paper that justifies. You can stand up for yourself in a conversation and say, no, this is what I know. And these are my, this is how I know it. And if somebody can refute that and show you that you're wrong, then that's an educational point that you should amend. But I think the main thing is always just to remember that there's there's probably some place in your community that's a little hole in the wall in this day and age now that most people pass by that you can go to and find somebody Almost like that old, uh, that old sage character in like all like in hero stories, yeah. Or the the guiding, the guide that every hero has in most of their stories that teases out the the evolution of the character yeah. as the story progresses. Throw a stone across your community. I bet you could hit somebody in the head that's got something that can teach you something. True. And I think that's a thing. It's been heavily devalued as people have focused more on higher education and this concept that you have to, you have to, have to, have to go to college. Pardon me, hang on. Yeah, and you, like, that you have to get a piece of paper saying that you 
right in debt. Just uh, right that you went in debt or that you did study some books that you studied some books that you could have bought at Barnes and Noble, right? But you didn't necessarily know to buy them because you're going to an educator that's right. spent thirty years in the subject or whatever have you, and they're telling you here's a snippet of what you can study in the subject. When you could literally go down to your local library or bookstore and have them tell you the same damn thing. Um, okay. Now you might not learn it as fast as if as when as if as when you do under the guidance of somebody who's got thirty years experience in that field. Right, because definitely academia does expedite a process. But right, but it's not like going to a uh, a campus where everybody's pursuing a whole bunch of different ideas is what naturally generates an educated person. That doesn't happen. Like there are plenty of people that go and fail out and or pass and come out and are still uneducated. Yeah. I mean, C's did get degrees. That's not just a saying. Yeah. Most of the people that graduate now, because there's so many people going to upper education, most of the people that graduate end up in a sub-related field or they end up not using their degree at all for some number of years after they graduate. They don't land in the field they intended to. Exactly. And that might be because they didn't go to their, the, um, was it the student hiring fairs that they have, the student job fairs that they have on campus. They didn't go to the student resource campus to get a list of the partner names that work in job placement for postgraduates, you know? Right. Um, I certainly didn't do that, but that's because I knew I didn't want to be somebody else's employee. Um, that right. being said, I, I did manage to graduate debt-free, but I worked my ass off for it, regardless of what anybody else tries to say. Um, and it wasn't easy, it wasn't fun, but you did it, because I knew coming out of coming out of any business arrangement, which is what education is, it's a business arrangement. You give somebody money for them to impart their knowledge to you. Coming out of any business arrangement saddled with a debt that you cannot get rid of without paying is not good. Right? That means you have one escape plan for that debt. Pay it off. Student loan debt is inescapable. If you die, it goes to the next person who co-signed with you. Right. And if you didn't co-sign with anybody, then the collectors will come after your family to see if they'll give. And then it's a whole court fight to prove that they're not responsible for your debt. It's insane. So to come out of that cons- that, that business arrangement with the teachers and with the school, and then you've brought in some third-party debt collection or debtor to, to back you on this journey because you didn't want to work full-time and go to school part-time is just insane to me and frankly I don't think it should be allowed but that's a whole nother conversation about economics and moral and ethical money practices but to stick on education you spend four years specifically working in one field with somebody in that field getting on the hands job experience you're typically going to be more valuable than the person who spent four years getting a college degree because two of those four years are going to be wasted on general credits that don't help advance their skills in that field. They can take electives that help 
but it's not getting them hands-on job experience and teaching people how to use the local resources for whatever it is they're doing, whether you're a nurse and somebody can't afford to come in for health care coverage or they can't afford to pay a bill and you show them the loophole in the system so that they can negotiate the price down or you're an insurance agent who is working with somebody who has two DOIs and needs a car for work, but they can't get a good insurance quote. Right. Right. On the hands job experience teaches you how to deal with that in a very nuanced way. I guarantee you, if you go and study finances for four years, that's not going to help you handle an emotional person who comes into your office looking for somebody to give them an olive branch. Yeah, definitely not. You know, that doesn't help you deal with the people out here in the world working off of second chances. And that's that's the reason why I asked the question, because when we get into the deeper meat and bones of our conversation today, I feel like, I mean, I share with you today my little red book and plan. Like, I think that we could have not just with this podcast, but with other related things and with linking with people that we know and with our vision that we could probably create something outside of the world of academia and provide a better education for folks like I mean, I always had it. It was my goal when I was young to, like, create a community center. Mm-hmm. There was, like, a community center with all type of activity for kids, but then it also contained, like, um, within it programs to, like, kind of teach kids about, like, life skills, trade skills, and kind of, like, philosophy, foster, foster philosophy and critical thinking. But then it was also going to be connected to a space where people could um, come in, use that space in order to take what they're developing over here in the center and, like, make it into, like, probably some sort of commerce-like thing Mm -hmm. or a sharing space, however they feel, see fit to do it. But to kind of foster this, this alternative, I mean, like, maybe what do you think that would be possible today? Like, Oh yeah. I mean, just not even half a mile from us mm-hmm. is a community outreach center. Right. At, down in, um, in Parkwood. Definitely. And they actually get a lot of action down there in that neighborhood. That, I mean, it, that neighborhood was structured in such a way that it's a front and back construction <clears throat> and it's not incredibly popular as like a cut through neighborhood. Like some are right. And it's in, it's intentionally designed that way to foster a closer community. And then they have a center. That center has a couple of different small businesses in it, in the strip. And then they have a, a community baseball field where the kid, they have a kid's league that comes out and plays baseball. They have a junior's league and a, and a teenager's league. So like, right, but my question, another question would probably be like what? I'm not even talking about on left-right spectrum type of thing. I'm talking about on like purely facts and oh, yeah. stuff. So How it, radical do you think society would let an idea like this go? Because mm. when I envisioned it when I was a young man, it was going to be like, I don't know, like some community centers, some schools have like banned book lists, things you don't talk about. I, I mean, I wanted to create a space where it could be raw. Where like mm-hmm. I want to you can talk about can, anything where you can read Minecraft yeah. and tear it apart. Who's that? Minecraft is Hitler's manifesto. 
I don't want to read anything by Hitler, but well, no, I mean, but for, for, <laughs> I for, mean the, for the sake of saying like, we want to open an intellectually free for space, someone who okay yeah, for someone who's okay, there, like that's if, fine. If a young Jewish kid Definitely. wants to come there and understand mm-hmm. their history and understand where that kind of hatred comes from mm-hmm. and how to fight against it, yeah, I'd want to be able to study and pick okay. apart the arguments of the. Mm-hmm. Person single-handedly responsible for the most, for one of the greatest massacres of the Jewish people. Definitely, right? I yeah. mean, there probably wasn't anybody as effective at it as Hitler since the Pharaohs, right? You know, so I think that's important, especially because that's recent history. People like people have a very misunderstood, uh, severe misunderstanding of history, and they're like. World War II is ages ago. No. It's not even a century old. Right. We're not even a century past that. It was right around the corner, man. I mean, that's like comparing the timeline between the Civil War and Jim Crow. Yeah. All right? We're not even past that same timeline. So I think it's very important that that book still be out there, that manifesto be out there for people to read and understand to prevent it from happening again. Right. right, and yeah, there are going to be people out there who read it and are drawn to it for the wrong reasons, but you can't get rid of an idea by pretending it doesn't exist. You can't put Mein Kampf on a ban list and pretend like Nazis no longer exist. They exist across the world, mm-hmm. and they're actually spiking in activity right now, mm-hmm. and it's not because New Zealand banned Mein Kampf on the book list. That's mm-hmm. not doing anybody any good. It's not doing the next generation of Jewish kids or the next generation of historians or the next generation of political leaders to not read. Right, because when we catch somebody doing something wrong in our culture today, like we don't like tell people they can't film it. We actually like promote the fact that you need to get your cell phone out and like yeah. record it. So I don't see why we can't. Yeah, like when you read like, recordings of history that show us right. the ugly of of you know. Yeah, you have to the take the good and bad and the ugly and work yeah. forward. And if you don't understand history, you're inevitably going to repeat the same mistakes because exactly. you're not learning from the person who's made that mistake. You're not learning from their lessons because you're not reading them. You're not hearing about it. I mean, Hitler didn't learn from his lesson until he took his last iron breath, and I don't even think he learned then. He probably learned when he was in hell burning, but... uh, I'll let you know when I get there. (laughs) I'll send you a postcard. (laughs) I mean, so what we talked about here in these first couple minutes is uh, related to our bigger topic at hand today. I mean, what's the purpose of, of, uh, of the position of the topic we're going to discuss today? Like, like, um... When we, so what we're talking about is a. Do you want to call it a thesis? Do you want to call oh, it no, a thought it's, experiment? It's certainly a thesis. Um, on the on like uh, perfection of the human experience. More so, so like the human. It's weird because it's more broadly stating it's a thesis on. It's a thesis on. Perfection's human reflection, which, okay. which sounds like alliteration, but I mean, I mean, it's we're trying to fi- we're not trying to figure out the law of God right now. That's so how we we're trying so, to figure out. 
So it's how we view what perfection is and through our experiences and like how we view life. Because from what I read, there's three different ways, right? Mm-hmm. How society sets up how things should be. Mm-hmm. How we perceive things to be based off of what morals we've set for ourselves. And I'm forgetting the third one. You're going to you're gonna have to come in here. And nature's design? Yes, nature's design of what it should be. Yeah, so, so that's, so that's, those are mm-hmm. the, uh, in my experience in philosophy and uh, just thinking about this and reading up on the concept of perfection, yeah, there's always there's those three camps that people fall into. Either perfection is something derived from the natural order of things, the way things naturally occur is the way they're supposed to, and therefore it's perfect because it balances out. There's the way our societies paint it you know here's your checklist of things you're supposed to do to be the perfect person perfect husband perfect wife perfect spouse perfect citizen this is what you're expected to do and if you achieve all those things then you're perfect but the point of it is to chase all those things constantly to try and be as perfect as you can be um and then You have the other camp, which is more abstract in terms of, like, it's more unique to each person, right? Each person's own perception of what works for them and what they view themselves, their perfect version of themselves is supposed to look like. Um, Those are the three old school camps. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to build on because those are what we really were sort of touching on when we were younger but what i'm trying to build towards is an objective lens to look at any human and determine what they look what their perfect form is not uniquely for them but what does perfection actually give them right take perfection as this concept so do you mean perfection was to give them like physically like emotionally everything like give them their perfect i don't want to say reality because that encompasses like their own like governance of society Mm -hmm. but that's not what it's about it's about perfecting their humanity and i don't mean that in a specifically moral or ethical way like you have human rights there's the humanity somebody has that's the value of their life which is x amount no i believe you got it right you probably their experience that would probably be a good definition for humanity right like i guess but it's objective right there's an objective marker within humanity that enables us to chase perfection Right, it, it's the same thing that gives us our unique ability to forecast our own demise and understand that. And that understanding of our impending death, although we don't know when it is specifically, we know it's eventually going to happen. And so we're able to forecast and 
improve upon ourselves faster and in more specific ways than any other species that I know of on this planet. Hashtag aliens are real. That being said, I don't know how... I. I've tried to explain this to people, and the thought experiment has sort of kind of worked with people, but they fall behind, or they get stuck in the causal loop, and they fail to understand the elevation that they're chasing, that that you're supposed to end up at. So I'm still working on whether or not that's an issue on my end, or an issue on the way we're teaching people to look, or a flaw in the perception of what perfection is supposed to look like in humanity. I think one night we were having a discussion about this, and I kind of equated it to the fact of, like, I, f- I think I think now that I have more of like, probably like an academic understanding of what we're talking about, because the conversation we're having was very informal. So to have a formal understanding of what you're talking about, we'll probably group. We'll probably group my personal moral code as chaos, right? And then we'll group how nature intended things to be as a natural a natural unity. And then we'll we'll group like what people tell us to be under like religion, right? Mm-hmm. So when we always think of like what people tell us how perfection is supposed to be, we kind of think about a set of rules, right? Ten commandments, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. number of prayers a day, like, like towards the sun, like, that's what we think about. When mm-hmm. we think about how nature's ordered it for it to be, we tend to think about, um, like, gypsies and people who flow with the current and, mm-hmm. you know, people who adopt the teachings of, like, yoga and, like, the chakras and stuff like that. And then, and I'm talking about, like, just methods of understanding and ordering your life. And then when we talk about, like, people who flow with, like, their own set of beliefs, then we talk about, like, agnosticism mm-hmm. or, like, atheism or right. um, people who are just nonconformist and mm-hmm. follow their own path. And... Um, I think what I was kind of telling you at one point is that at some point, no matter where you approach life, you kind of end up in the same, Mm -hmm. like you bottleneck your experience. You bottleneck your experience into one lane Mm -hmm. and it all meets up at some point. Like when we look at the point of prayer in Christianity and the point of meditation in Buddhism and Hinduism, it's all to like channel your spiritual energy mm-hmm. and make it flow in one direction. And at the end of that channeling is possibly some sort of awakening or some sort of gift, right? Or some sort of like loosening of the burden off of yourself or um, like a dropping of the weight. Like, we all have our own method of doing that, and we all have our own method of probably doing and handling with the exact same life experiences the same way. So, what I think I was explaining to you at one point is that we can take this one strand 
through everybody's experience. Mm-hmm. And we can loop it at different points, but mm-hmm. kind of find the same string going through all of it, which right. I kind of feel right. and is what you're kind of talking yeah, so about. That's, so that's the key factor here in, in this thesis that we're working on. It's like everybody who's ever chased the concept of perfection has had this, this idea just beyond the scope of their writing. Mm-hmm. There's something about humans that makes us want more. That makes us... I mean, yeah, dude, we can't even be satiated. It's like that we can literally perceive that we're Mm -hmm. not where we want to be, but we can't perceive clear enough where we want to be to just go and take one step there and get there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I would would kind of... It's like trying to look through a fog bank. You know you're not home yet, Mm -hmm. and there's fog on the road or there's fog on the path home. And you're like, if I could take one step, if I knew that this was on the other side of the fog, I could make that jump and just do it all in one go. I feel like the awesome can't do right, it. right. I feel like the awesome thing about nature, though, is when you look at it, is that it never stops moving. Like it dies in patches, mm-hmm. but it never stops building on itself. That's kind of like right, if which we, is a key factor. That's kind of like if we human. left Earth. That's the key factor. If we left Earth mm-hmm. without any type of human interaction at all, the Earth would continue to build out and up on its own. Mm-hmm. We didn't need to do anything. It right. would do that naturally. Right. That's how we got volcanoes. That's how we got mountains. That's how we got, like, Shout out to the So the thing about it is that I think we've lost that concept, which is kind of like, uh, I feel like... Uh, mm-hmm. When I think about my own experience, right, you don't really, you don't really realize that the point is not to stop. Like, so when you're running, right, Mm -hmm. you run, you say, I'm going to go on a treadmill and I'm going to do two miles and I'm going to stop. Right. If we take that, that personification or that metaphor and then we apply it to life, I don't think you're supposed to hop on the treadmill of life and only run two miles. I think you're supposed to keep going. Because we take this house, we build the foundation, we take the frames, we build that out, put the windows in, we put the sheetrock, we put the walls, we do the roof, we do all that, we put it on. And at the end of the day, we make our house and we say, that's it. This is my house. This is it. And I think that's the issue, is finality. Wanting some sort of finality to the life is probably the reason why a lot of things do end, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it all has to do with kind of a little bit of what you're saying is like perception, right? So how we perceive some things to be and how how we look at certain things. Like, mm-hmm. um, I, think, I think we're getting bogged down in the nuances of it Okay. right now, um, which is great and fun. Right, right. Um, but I think more broadly so that people can catch up with us because that's mm-hmm. something you and I constantly run into is that when we talk to other people, they're like, yeah. okay, you've lost me. Yeah, definitely. And I'm not tooting our horns here or anything, mm-hmm. but that's just the common thing that you and I run into constantly. Yeah. People go, wait, back that up. What? And then you get bogged down in a, in a roadblock for 30 minutes. 
to an hour in a conversation trying to explain to somebody who hasn't made that intellectual leap that we're talking about making. Mm -hmm. So more broadly speaking, there's a key element of in humans that has allowed us the gift to perceive our own demise. We can see how we could fail. We can learn before we have failed. We can learn not to fail without experiencing it sometimes. Which gives humanity, and when I say humanity, listeners, I mean humans as a species. Right? It's not a tribal thing. It's a it's a much more bigger framework that we're operating under right now. Humanity has an ability to change and reason that most other species do not. You see it, sort of, in other species in our world. Mm -hmm. um, in hyper-intelligent creatures like dolphins or um, other mammal species like apes, chimps, um, even in the lower, considered the lower intellectual subspecies like cats and dogs that we spent time domesticating. Mm. They show an increased level of intelligence innately. But not to the extent that humans do. I mean, yeah, nobody manipulates a, the earth like we do. No right, humans have an ability to, to change, to, to adapt for survival faster than any other species. Right. Now, certain species like phytoplankton plankton can survive almost anywhere, including in the water. Right? Humans can't survive in the water perpetually. But, it's phytoplankton is also a single-celled organism. Right. And we're one of the most complex organisms in the world. So, Given the fact that we've come so far, we live in pretty much every possible, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Every possible biosphere in the biome. world. Biome in the world. Yeah. I mean, Tibetan monks have a unique uh, blood genetic marker that allows their hemoglobin to process oxygen faster. Certain uh, clans or people in the Polynesian islands have eyes that literally focus light better underwater specifically. Oh yeah, because they dive and they, they spend so much time in the water, under the water, dealing with the sun glare yeah. through water that their eyes over generations have just adapted to filter it better. Their irises, their retina strength, the cones they and rods. Super freaking fast. Yeah, they, they swim much faster, their bodies have, their bodies are like Michael Phelps bodies. Yeah. They don't build up lactic acid as fast in their muscles when they use them, and their bodies process it out faster, so they can keep going longer. Um, and that, you know, these, these are unique ways that happen, right? They're, they're genetically passed down each generation. But each generation spends 20, 30 years cultivating that skill set before it's passed out, typically. Yeah. Um, and so when you do things like that, it leaves a, a lasting imprint as shown by the genetics of humans. And it doesn't matter where humans go, they figure it out. In Africa, in Africa you have 
the sickle cell gene, which naturally developed to combat malaria. Yeah. And, um, what is it? Uh, in the, um, Nordic, the Nordic lands, the ancient Nordic lands that are now Scandinavia. Yeah. Um, the way they process protein is much more efficient, especially in... Well, it's now like Norway, Finland, and Sweden. Now it's Norway, Finland, but even in, even across the globe, ab- above the polar circle, yeah. the Inuit tribes process meat, their bodies process protein much more efficiently than we do below the Arctic Circle. And so they don't have to have all the vegetables and citrus fruits that we do, or the tropical fruits that we do, in order to survive. Yeah. They live off of mostly a meat and fish diet. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the uniquities these are nature's evidence that we can look at and go okay there's something different we're not quite sure what it is that makes our genetic code that adaptable but it's so adaptable you can manipulate it as much as you want given enough subjugation to different experiences in different environments and what I'm putting into perspective here is that that adaptability, that human X factor to survive and change is what makes humans capable of achieving perfection. And it's not that there's a, it's not to think of perfection as an end goal for your life. Like it's not about a checklist where you have a Ferrari and a Lambo and a mansion and you're making X amount of money per year and month and anything like that. It's literally about your human condition of existence for you. What's your perfect version of yourself look like? That's what we're talking about trying to achieve. And we're trying to create a, a, a principled outline, right? Because I can't give you a roadmap because I'm not you. But a principled outline to guide you down that path. Mm-hmm. Of constant forward motion to keep changing and adapting and surviving, right? Because that's basically what set humanity apart from every other species. No matter what changes nature throws at us, we survive. A cataclysmic event happens and somehow humans adapt and survive. Mm-hmm. The harshest environments in the world, humans survive. So... The idea is that you take that adaptability, the human X factor to change pragmatically for the goal of survival is what makes you the perfect human. Your ability to change consistently when needed as necessary to assure your survival as a species. Well, when you're changing that much, the most common argument I'll question i should say that i get back the pushback that i get on this is well if you're changing that much how can you be perfect which is a fair question because most people think of perfection or they perceive their perception of perfection is actually an end goal a state of being that never has to change because it's perfect but i think that's a flaw in the thought process of humanity that's been put there by societal education and societal pressures as we've developed across the world. 
and come in and out of contact with each other and conflict forces us to make decisions that are not necessarily about what's best for our survival in the long run. It's about what's best for our survival tomorrow. Mainly, when I ask people who ask me, well, you, if it's perfection, it can't be constantly changing. That's the, that's the premise that most people who pursue perfection have. And I go, why not? Why can't it be a constantly changing, ambiguous goal that you achieve? Like you achieve a state of perfection because you're constantly changing and adapting. And whatever comes your way, you're going to survive. Barring the death of your natural body, right? I mean, your heart gives out. You get hit by a meteor. Whatever. Barring a, a, a cataclysmic event like that, you continue to adapt and survive. Why does it have to be a set state? Where did you... I ask people all the time, where do you get this idea that perfection is an end goal where you just stop having to learn you stop having to eat food to survive you stop having to breathe oxygen to live where do you get this idea this infectious concept that perfection of yourself means you no longer have to work mm -hmm. right that's what makes humans humans is that we adapt we change we survive we work constantly to fight for our place as an apex predator, when in reality we function as a level two on the food chain, which means we eat small stuff and then bigger stuff eats us. Right. Right? We function as an apex predator species, but we're not. So what is that? Why is that not the focus of our perfection, of our pursuit of perfection? And almost unequivocally, across the board, people innately trace their perceptions of perfection back to some ambiguous identity that doesn't exist in our world. Mm. Even if they have a role model for what they think perfection looks like in our world, that person gets their pursuit of perfection from somewhere else, right? So you're following the derivative back to the source. And inevitably, it always comes back to some ambiguous nature. And by ambiguous nature, I mean some extraterrestrial, existential deity, god construct that you, that's an intangible construct that somehow lays out a moral and ethical roadmap to our world that it tells us we're supposed to function with within those bounds in order to be the perfect person. Mm -hmm. In order to be the perfect per human, you have to follow this deity's rules, whether it's in Jainism, Buddhism, Greek or Roman mythology, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. There's a, at top of the pyramid, there's some existence dictating what perfection looks like in our world, yet innately those deities do not live in our world. They exist on a higher plane. And if you're faithful and loyal and you do what they say and you live in those lanes, even if it kills you, 
even if it leads to the death of your entire family, if you're faithful, you get to ascend to this higher plane of existence. So what is the point of pursuing that kind of perfection in this world? What is the point of pursuing a perfection of something that you can't touch? What? Why live and measure your life and tell yourself that you're a piece of shit or you're the best thing that's ever happened since sliced bread on some principles that are supposedly given to us by something that you may or may not feel is true? And if you do feel that that's true, that's fine. If that's what helps you be adaptable and flexible and continue to evolve as a human being in this world, mm -hmm. that's good. That's great. I mean, I would argue with you as to whether or not that perception actually has to be tied to a religious philosophy, but that's another discussion. What mm -hmm. we're talking about is pers is perfecting the human condition. And I think the main problem we've had as a species across every society, across history, is that we perceive our perfection to be something outside of our realm of existence. And if it's outside of our realm of existence, we cannot attain it within this realm. We live on Earth. If the entity that tells you how to behave perfectly gives you a set of rules, those rules are coming from a perspective outside of our world. Even if they say it's tailored to our world, innately, that deity, that, that god that you believe in, that thing, that moral philosophy you believe in, is constructed by something that is on such a grander scope and scale that it cannot be tailored to your position. And that is a flaw in that belief. If it's not tailored to you, you're not going to be able to find what's perfect for you. Mm. Which is what leads to people being lost, in my belief, in this chasing of perfection and the perfect Instagram shot, the perfect life, the perfect checkbook, the perfect car. Our flawed perceptions of perfection is an end goal rather than a state of mind or a state of being you exist in every day to survive. That's the critical difference that we've not grasped I because it right. ties back to some ideologue that's not even grounded in the world you live in. It's I don't think it's a problem with the ideology. I think it's a problem with the institutionalization of the ideology. And that's a fair point, too, which I'm still struggling with because making it into an institution and a market. Right. So. I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of times what we struggle with and which is why we probably can't, which is why we started off the beginning of this podcast talking about probably making something outside of academia because the issue is, is that in order to fit most ideology inside of everyday life practices, you have to fit it into what already exists as the societal norm. So as the everyday language. So every everybody thinks that in America, English is the first language. And let me tell you right now, that's not true. It ain't. We speak all different languages here in America. And the only language that everybody speaks uniformly here is money. 
Mm. So, of course, you have to tailor everything to the language of money. The problem is, is that you take the ideologies and the only way they become widely spread out between the people is converting the ideology into the language of money, which never works and which always skews the view. Because when we think about ideologies and we think about what should guide our life, we always tend to think about it in a negative way because of the way that it's peddled by people who don't necessarily, they want to bottleneck the ideology into a certain lane, right? Mm. That people who can't fit into that probably have a hard time going into and you end up having to conform and essentially naturalize yourself like somebody who mm-hmm. comes to America from a different culture. It's the same right. it's the same process. And I think so, that's a critical flaw. Like you right, and that's not what I'm does not and it, uh, mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt. It's a, a key term difference that I don't that I specifically avoid. Mm-hmm. Conformity is not adaptability. Definitely. It's not. A lot of it's similar because you Typically, we think about having to conform to societal norms or a group's norms in order to survive, mm. in order to make yourself look more like one of that group. That is not what makes humans perfect. What makes humans perfectly adaptable is our ability to survive despite not fitting into an environment. Right, and I think, Anyways. and I, I, I just think that we struggle with trying to bottleneck everything. Mm-hmm. That we leave out the edge of the edge of the people who who fall there on the outside of mm-hmm. the understanding of the ideology. So you think it? So you think to make it more like? I mean, because what I'm saying more, is, like is that visually capable for the listeners. Do you think it's more? You think it's like saying we're ignoring, as a society, we're ignoring the outliers in the bell curve and only focusing on average and telling people to focus on that and chase that? And whoever's can't do that, whoever is stuck on the outliers on either side of the bell curve is just shit out of luck. Average? Uh, um, right, so if you have a bottleneck, it's basically shaped like a bell curve, but you have an outlet, mm-hmm. which would peak at the average, at, at center average. And so when you're visualizing it and thinking about it, it's like chasing the average is what you want in that in that image, because that's the way out. And if you don't, if you can't fit into that middle lane, you crash into the edge of the bell curve or the edge of the bottle, and you'll... And that aspect is discarded. Okay, so here's something that, okay. I might have taken it too literally. No, no, no. I'm probably taking it too literally, but it's, um, I kind of think when you fit through the bottleneck of some sort of religion or understanding, Mm -hmm. you're actually more than average. You probably are this close to reaching enlightenment, or this close to elevating yourself. He is currently using his fingers to right. show like an inch of space. But 
what 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 you learn in Christianity is that like even in a hall of angels you had one that fell and became Lucifer became the devil so we always remind ourselves that Lucifer once was an angel and he too commanded the same power as all the others so I say that to say that once you gain the information, the issue is that it's yours to take that power mm-hmm. and do what you want with it. And the issue that the underlying theme, I mean, because if it's not already publicly known, I, I'm a Christian. So the underlying theme is that when you, when you, grasp this information you may not even know that you are causing harm to the overall greater good of humanity you 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 may not know that so i'm trying to put it because i'm not by any means like my father he converted to islam and he always tells me all the time which I mean, if you're wondering, it's not even an issue. I'm a Christian. He's Muslim. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't feel like it should cause any type of tension. I don't feel like as a Christian, I'm like, oh, he is somebody that is sinful. Like, that's not a thing. That's the opposite of what I'm trying to display here. So don't even go there. But the thing is, is that he always tells me, yeah, I converted to Islam, and I'm not the best Muslim, but Mm -hmm. I'm always learning. It's the same Mm -hmm. thing with me. I'm not the best Christian, so don't take this as I'm the preacher telling you the sermon, because it's definitely not so, but in what I've listened to and what I've learned and what my experience has been is that you can learn the message, you can learn the word, and you can take that, and you can go through your whole life using that or negative things and you don't even know it because a lot of people don't know the power of their word a lot of people don't know the many opportunities they have to use their understanding and their methodology of things the right way in order to lead somebody down the right path like we just don't know that so instead of taking these things and using them for to push each other forward, we take this set of values that we've learned in an institution, and we try to push people towards the institution institutionalization mm-hmm. of the ideology, which yeah. is not the way not the way it should go. Right. I mean, I mean, you can't fit people so, into a mold that was crafted outside of their existence. Exactly. Right? Like, they're never going to... If you think of people in this in this, in this this concept, in this working thesis of chasing perfection, if your mold for perfection mm-hmm. is based on a, uh, a higher existence, mm-hmm. and I prefer to use that term rather than God or deity because some people don't like that term, in a more general understanding term, 
that doesn't create a disconcordance in your head. If your mold for the way you should be operate and behave in this world is based on a higher existence, that mold is inherently going to be bigger than this world. And because you live in this world, you're not going to fill up that mold. And because you don't fill that mold precisely the way it's laid out, you're, it inevitably leads to an interpretation that you are somehow flawed and not perfect. Because you don't fit a mold for a larger world. Okay. and um, I, That's, that's so, stupid to me to think that I'm going to say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about being the perfect form of myself on Earth. I'm going to be worried about being the perfect form of myself for Venus or Jupiter. Okay, but, that you, makes sense. but you will find that some of the most successful people that are also some of the most mentally sound people that they can be for their match success are people who find very little worth in themselves. So I, I okay, but now you're back into measuring success by societal standards of money and wealth mm -hmm. and stature. So and what we're talking about is achieving. Is chasing, a, I shouldn't say achieving, but chasing a constant state of... Not necessarily. I've met a lot of successful people that don't have more than $1,000 to their name. I mean, that's, that's not that right. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. I'm talking about my experience. You meet some of the most successful, some of the most, like, if you were to... And see, that's the issue with what we're doing is that I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to... Gain an understanding for what perfection would mean as a whole for all of humanity. And the issue with that is probably that, like you said, there's different uniquities between different geographical groups of people and different ways of ordering yourself as what you feel like your purpose is in life. I feel like you then reach a part where you have to take all these infinite number. Because when you think about it, human, this is the problem with group. When you think about it, humans will always find an infinite number of things to try to measure themselves on. They will try it. What do I feel like is above me? What do I feel like is below me? What, what do I feel like... I have to do with my health or my body, what I feel like I have to do with interacting with other people, how should I view the world around me, how should the world around me view me, like, we measure ourselves so many different ways, so I feel like there is millions of different ways that we interact with the world around us, or that we measure ourselves on, or grade ourselves, or there's many different spectrums that we've fall into and I feel like all in all we take those infinite amount of measurements and we condense those down to a DNA of how we social sociologically and psychologically interact within the world and that would give you a good gauge when you average it up on how we all do it now then you have to ask yourself do we take what we think perfection, and I'm air quoting here, perfection 
would mean to do we think that would mean to take everybody's infinite total sums of measurements and gradients of behaviors and relationships and average them out? Or do we try something else? Which is where the next part of our conversation can branch off to, which is an issue that we do have an infinite amount of stuff that we grade ourselves on. And how do we measure that? How do we measure what by your quote unquote per, okay, so like so this is what I was saying earlier. It's it's not that the uniquities of people across multiple societies. So you're saying you measure perfection on adaptability? Yeah. I mean, because that is what has defined humanity as a species. That's what makes us what we are. So then you come to a point where... It's the, the objective perception of perfection for humans, for humanity as a whole. The objective perception is, or should, it's not currently, it should be based on your adaptability and your ability to change to survive and maintain who you are. So then you come to, I, I feel like in my head, the direct correlation between that is like adaptability and survivability, right? Am I wrong or am I right? Sorry, say that one more time. So my thing is when you talk about adaptability, we find that adaptability when measuring how we measure perfection would equal survivability, correct? Correct. Okay. Most likely most likely executed in a pragmatic fashion in your day-to-day life. Does that make sense? One thing you can learn by playing strategy games is that you learn that there's a common thread between all strategy games is that the farther you progress chronologically through a strategy game, the more that it, the more exponentially your research, your resources, you're in need for resources than you were in the beginning. So although I think, and this is how the balance of life This is how the balance of life expresses itself to show how balanced it actually is. Because, yes, you can adapt and you can survive, right? But we know that when we take land, right, and we farm it for, like, five years straight, the soil will be depleted of all minerals and stuff like that. So it's scientifically proven that if you survive longer, you will take more from your earth. Which is the problem with this air quotes perfection argument, like thought experiment that we're doing, is because that may be perfection probably for you, because maybe that first generation that reaches enlightenment probably adapts and survives the longest, but they end up creating the most toil on the world around them. Which makes things exponentially harder for the next generation. So that's why we find that you have fluctuating survival rates, right? 
So, like, this generation will live to be 100 years old, and then on average, and then the next one will live to be 50. I'm just like, those are not actual numbers, but that's kind of how it goes. Because we live in this ebb and flow of people taking and have, being prosperous for so long, depleting all the resources, and then you live in a moment of scarcity, right? So what I would say is that actually the most, and I was thinking about this today, like before you, like we even came to record this podcast, is that like it actually would be beneficial for a generation to have less survivability. So for humans to survive up to the age of 40 and 50, because that means we use less resources over time. And one thing that, like, when you get older as a human being, I don't know if any of you guys have kind of tried to, like, see this about yourself. You become more wasteful as you get older. And I kind of see it in my children, is that we think children are kind of wasteful. And I'm going on a huge tangent here, which describes a lot of explanations of a lot of different behaviors and actions. But honestly, like kids are less wasteful because they pro- they need less than an adult needs and we need it more often. And then we get tired of um, what is the word? Um, the same thing. Redundancy. So we like we like different things all the time. So we're constantly like what I'm saying is that like as what I'm saying with like real time strategy games is like as you go chronologically through the game, you exponentially need more resources, which is the same thing with humans. As we get older, we get tired of redundancy. So we are constantly seeking new things to do. So like when you were a kid, you had a very narrow path of things you like to do. And as you became older, that path widens up and like. If the path continues to be a tunnel with walls that are even, as a human, you feel like your life is over because everything's redundant. You're doing the same thing every day. Right. Because as a human, when you get older, things have to keep widening for you to stay happy. If they're not widening for you, you're not happy because you're not experiencing anything new. I actually think that as a human, if you have a a shorter life, you will lead a happier life. And you will require less resources. I mean, if we're talking about it with, like, no emotion involved, we detach any sort of, con- like, okay. connection to... So, there's two huge caveats to that argument that I feel cut it out of the perfection dialogue. That argument, for one, is consistently linear. Okay. And... Just because you experience something one time or 50 times does not mean that it loses its novelty and does not mean that it's lost its freshness on your human experience because you're constantly changing and interacting and adding in new experiences. What once you thought you understood and experienced a certain way. It definitely does. It definitely does. When it comes back around the next time, could it hit you a totally different way? No, it definitely does because... Okay, so what you're essentially saying is that I'm saying like your your what you your description you just laid out implies that if there's not a constant feed of newness mm-hmm. in your life, everything becomes redundant and loses value than the right. initial moment. But a human's life currently does not last long enough for us to experience everything we have on this planet currently or tomorrow. 
I mean, and that's where we the, don't in, have enough in time in this podcast to discuss everything because I agree with you. But if the you thing live is for that a thousand years, maybe. But the average mm-hmm. human life is only eighty-five to ninety years. So, and even the humans in unique places like Ikathia, and which is an island in the Mediterranean, where their average lifespan on the island is a hundred and two. Mm-hmm. They mm. still get up every day and party all night. They get up every day, party all night. There's no clocks on the island. There's no technology. There's no news feed giving them the new click, the new trigger. There's no grand spanking new philosophy being introduced that goes, Hey, look, you've been living your life wrong this whole time. Come listen to these five facts and you'll change your life. They don't have any of that on that island. But their human experience is unique enough to them that it feeds them and satisfies them every day. So this idea that you have to have a constant feed of newness, of new elements, because you will live long enough to experience all of life as we are now is wrong. Because we don't live long enough to experience everything in the world. In every single combination that it occurs. That's the that's my first problem with it. My second problem is that it There's a lot of issues I have with what you just said, but okay. Okay, we'll come back to it. My second problem is that what you just described is about a constant change. You were framing it as if it was a problem of uh uh a problem with stability, right? And therefore, what you need is constant add in to the equation, added in new elements to your journey as a human. Otherwise, you become bored and you end up using up more resources that way. But humans have been shown behaviorally to find something that they uniquely attach to that brings them joy. They don't need 100% of everything. They don't need 80% of everything. Most people have one, two, maybe three things that give them enough joy on a cyclical basis. You don't think that you're constantly changing, but you are. Because you're right. I understand what you're saying. People become fine with doing the same things all the time. What is a common thing that people become... Like, give me... Okay, what's a so, common thing that people... Like, what's a common hobby that brings lots of people joy? Yeah. Gardening. Okay. Which involves its own menagerie of constant changing elements and themes. <laughs> you could change your garden every season. And by the time you die, you still can't have grown every single plant in the world. Okay. I have an argument for that one, but whatever. Okay. What um, music. People love music. Some people love specific niches of music because it's always constantly changing. Like, some people just love to listen to classical music, right? They don't understand hip-hop or R&B. And some people prefer R&B and hip-hop and don't like classical music. Okay, what else? I hate to use this one. Religion. I don't want to use it because my... The entire thing that I'm working on is 
basically cornered on the concept that our flawed perception of perfection comes from a religious dogma. Okay, but you're century, saying that religion it is... does bring people renewed joy and happiness. But religion is something that people do to stay happy? Right. Practicing Bro, religion I can't or, wait or believing you understand in religion. what I'm about to tell you. Okay. okay. So is that enough for this is enough because okay. I grew up with my grandparents. I grew up going there every summer and they garden all the time. Mm-hmm. The issue with gardening is that a lot of garden, a lot of people who get into gardening, you have to constantly be expanding. You have to constantly being adding new plants to your flower bed and your garden. And like someone who truly loves gardening, I feel like like, are never happy until they expand as fast and as much as they want to. hmm Interesting. So as much as you think gardening is something that never changes and that you never plant every plant, everybody it's has to do You said you will never be able to plant. I said you will never. In- okay. You here's, will never experience planting every plant in your garden. That's what I said. Okay. Here's what I should have said. You will never exhaust. As a human being, you will never completely exhaust the adaptability. Okay. Well, let's let's chose, let's go to the second thing, which is music. Okay. A lot of people like music. A lot of people like the same tones, but what you don't understand is that the art form is constantly being changed to an ever-changing ear where it's that we take we take a similar sound, we make it readily available and appealing to everyone, which is what pop is, and then we mm-hmm. coordinate it off to different genres to mix it in different ways. And we do this with sounds, and the sounds always change from a different region. So as much as you want to say that music probably may bring people the same joy and somebody can collect music for all their life and never love anything else, the music will always change, and that's what they will always love about the music. Right, that's what... That's what and so religion... what are we arguing about here? Because and religion, we're on the same page. No, we're not. And religion... Constantly bring people's joy. The text never changes. The 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 way of thinking almost never changes. But you find that when you go to a church, they're constantly having to revitalize and renew and do new things to catch more people because the same old method of trying to bring people into the church just doesn't work after a certain period of time. So as much as you want to say that there are certain things that people do or like to do that never change and they don't need anything new, even the thing, no, that's the argument you had, even the things that people love to do in their life that they like, that they love to do, that they never change doing and they never look for anything new that thing that they like to do always changes and always has some new component to it and you almost never recognize it or that's what the person who loves it loves about it. So, what I'm saying is the human experience is to want and crave new things from everything around you. And that person who likes the same thing but never changes probably always likes new things out of the thing that they like. 
Or you find some people like myself who you always crave new things, but never really tap on to something to want to do with the rest of your life. Because you like to learn everything. And that's just the human experience. You just... So how are we talking mm-hmm. about the... So how does that tie back into the perception of perfection for humans? So... Your... Your thing is like you take these three methods that we that we group ourselves in to like kind of cordon off our experiences in life. And what I'm saying is, is that what I was going to tell you is like, don't take this personally, but this will probably always be a thought experiment for the simple fact that it's so difficult for you to truthfully get to the true core of what the answer for this or what the meaning of this is going to be just for the simple fact that you think perfection means adaptability and survivability and if i'm correct probably measuring that in some way correct i would okay all right shit it just because my thing is, you can't you can't so measure the, so that within without so taking the iniquity. So, what makes adaptability hard to measure, particularly in humans, is that it is adaptable, which means it's very hard to create a standard of measurement and go one plus one equals two on this ratio, and that's how we can interpret the math, and that's how we can formulate and forecast. The point of adaptability is that you it's is that there's some amount of it that's always going to be incalculable. You think you have it narrowed down into a, an equation or a formula or an expression and you apply it to life and then something else in life happens and it changes and your equation was wrong. I mean that's the nature of change. And so what I'm saying is that while people might use up a finite amount of resources in X number of years, depending on how many hobbies and how much money those hobbies take. It is subsequently irrelevant because what you're arguing for is the survivability of that human to the point where they pass on their genes and their adaptability. Yeah, but you're cutting out the fact that we're like... What that person experiences passes over to the next generation. Only when, well, I can't say it that way because that's not true. <clears throat> so I was getting ready to say that a, a person's adaptability has a, a shelf life, basically, where once you pass on your genetics, your adaptability is no longer whatever you adapt to after you create children is subsequently wasted adaptability. But that's not technically true because you can pass on your adaptability through education like we were talking about earlier. You can give your gift of experience or knowledge to somebody. You don't actually have to just have kids and pray that they turn out as well-balanced as you did or as well-adjusted or adaptable as you did. You can train adaptability in people, which is another uniquity that makes 
which makes this whole process harder, right? To take this, as you said, beyond the thought experiment is extremely difficult because My it's thing very is, hard to make a, a universal to draw a universal line on a on a grid and go. This is where everybody can start. When your the whole thing is, is change. Okay, so you're saying you can measure the perfection of the human experience on adaptability. That's what you're saying. You that can, would be that. That's how you. The adaptability is the variable you would measure when trying to, but it's inherently almost impossible to mathematically, scientifically measure because of its nature. Because the nature of it is change, it's hard to create a measurement because measurements work off of sets that recur repeatedly in a consistent order and then you correlate those dots on a grid you say this is a pattern and a relationship this is how they occur and they some years there's this much some years there's this much and it changes and there's pattern but the problem with change as a key factor for survivability is that change is inherently changing it changes so much that it's almost impossible to precisely to measure in a significant way. You can be like, yeah, this this is how you'll probably, if you're going to survive in this kind of environment, these are the changes that have to occur along X amount of years. You can do that for people. right? You can calculate the genetic adaptability of somebody and go, this, this is the total gene pool this population of people has. We're going to put them in this super harsh environment. This is the rate of change they have to achieve in order to survive by themselves. You can do all that, but you can't measure change inherently from person to person. If you put it in a controlled group, if you put it into a computer program and set all the parameters, you can measure it. But you and I can't walk out on the street tomorrow talk to somebody all day long and create an analysis for them even if we were mathematical geniuses our analysis of them and their mathematically probable future is still subject to change because humans have the capability to change and refute the statistics but what you're saying is at the end of at the end of this, when you when you measure it, had you adapted and survived with the lo- longest survivability, mm-hmm. with if you were the last man standing, or with last being woman the standing, most productive, achieve. with being the most productive, and the most frugal, and the, mo- and the most frugal. Where are you pulling productivity and, fr- and fragility from? Okay, so like, let's or say, let's say you're comparing somebody that lived to be fifty to somebody who lived to be 120, mm-hmm. and the person who lived to be 120 probably used up less resources than the person who lived to be 50. How did that happen? That's what I'm saying you would measure it on because the human because what i feel like you're cutting out of this whole thing is measuring adaptability and longevity no no no. what i'm saying is is that 
what I'm trying to get at is are you are you saying that you have reached the the top of your thesis when you find the person who has lived the longest and adapted the most to the most harshest conditions. Interesting. Is that what you're saying? The conditions and conditions the conditions in which they adapt to mm-hmm. the severity of them mm-hmm. is not as important as how well they have adapted to the number of changes they've been given. So if you have somebody that's gone through a well, hundred... I'm, I'm hinging on like kind of one comment you said, well, all you have to do is pass on your genes. Yeah, let, let's take we a break. We're going to take a break. We're going to come right back. Come right back. We've decided that um, we're going to have to wrap this one up pretty quick because it's getting pretty late here and we don't want the quality of this particular session or conversation to take a nosedive and get quagmired. So, and picking up where we left off just before the break, Nimbus, you said that you had a, you were fixated on my comment about measuring the the precise measurement of human adaptability being measured when it's passed on at a genetic level. Mm-hmm. To clarify, I said that meaning that's eh, not the word. That's not the right way to say it. I said that with the precursor being this is not the only way to do it. Because you can pass on adaptability in more than way, one way. Genetics is one way to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to ensure uh, some measurement of survivability is passed on. But you can also do it in other ways. right? Education, training somebody, mentoring somebody, uh, having a, an apprentice, that kind of thing. You can pass on your skill set in more ways than just genetics. So measuring uh, adaptability and survivability by genetics is not the way it should be thought of. Either it shouldn't be thought of as the best way, nor should it be thought of as the only way. Mm. Particularly because it's much easier and much... You reach more people acting as a teacher than as a parent. Right. Because you can reach more people and you're more likely to leave a lot of a little in each person or a little bit of a lot of different things in each person than you are to leave a whole lot in a whole lot of kids. Especially mm-hmm. in today's day and age. Raising kids is not cheap. Right. <laughs> they don't become a man at 14, 16 years old and marry off and go buy a plot of land and live in a cabin. Right. That's not what we do anymore. <laughs> so, um, does that clarify my position at all for you? Does that make it easier for you to follow me along in the conversation? 
Yeah, it makes everything good for part two tomorrow when we clash again. Okay, tomorrow <laughs> not being the 16th. Tomorrow being the next session. There you go. Um, so thank you guys for tuning in to the A-Space Podcast, session one of the Perfection Series. There we go. Yeah, We're going to call this the Perfection Series. Um, ground laying, laying out the groundwork for our evolving philosophy. And um, hopefully next time we'll get more so into the, the actual published works that other people who have come before us have written about perfection and chasing that dream as a human. Um, thank you guys for tuning in once again. This is the A Space Podcast with Nimbus the AP and the One Eye Gambler. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, A Space Podcast, just A Space Podcast, mm-hmm. A Space Podcast at Twitter, and then on Twitter and Instagram. We're also publishing and on Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcast, and uh, soon to be coming YouTube. With hopefully a video aspect to it if not a really really good meme <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys thank peace peace, peace.